This is the second part of the psalm we began last week. And the main point of the psalm is still what I told you on our previous Sunday together, verse 1. The whole point of these 40 verses is to make this case. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So in week 2 of these two parts looking at Psalm 37, we continue fleshing out the main point. The writer knows that the wicked may seem to succeed in the short term. They look around at the rise of wickedness and the corruption of evildoers in low places and in high places, in political and non-political settings, domestically or internationally, wickedness seeks a foothold. The devil and his wily and malicious ways seeks to oppose God and his people. And in the short term, we might look around and fret, be overwhelmed and worked up inwardly. Worked up in a way that is not simply righteous indignation, but in ways that make us even feel tempted to envy the success of the wicked. They seem to be getting away with this. Uh, their, Their plots or strategies seem to be working for them. The writer says to us, you need to see things from how the promises of God are painting this picture in the whole and not a mere slice of how the wicked will look at their strategies and think they're succeeding. The folly of the wicked is that they only think short term. So let us not imitate the attitude of the wicked that is only thinking of the now and what their desires can be fulfilled in and whatever mechanisms worldly and fleshly need to be applied. Psalm 37 says, believer, don't live like that. Don't think about the world that way. Don't think about your present life that way. There is a greater unfolding story of a good God who is sovereign and just and the day of the wicked shall come and sooner than we think. And certainly sooner than the wicked thinks. In Psalm 37, there are three parts to our passage this morning. And in verses 21 to 26, a series of contrasts between the wicked and the righteous. And one of the reasons we need to think about the contrast between the wicked and the righteous in verses 21 to 26 is because it serves the point of the psalm in verse 1. In order for us not to fret over wrongdoers and not to be envious of evildoers, it will be helpful to us to think about the contrast between the righteous and the wicked because when we believe what the Bible says about the righteous... And when we believe what the Bible says about the wicked, it motivates us and directs us in truth and wisdom and away from the foolishness of rebellion against God. In verses 21 through 26, the contrast between the wicked and the righteous start like this. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. One of the backgrounds here is likely Deuteronomy and in chapter 28, where one of the blessings of the righteous is that with their hard and faithful work, with their pursuit to apply themselves with integrity, they're entrusting themselves and their vocation to the Lord who provides for them. But the wicked are not so. In their wicked schemes, they seek to acquire for themselves and in their snares they've set for others, their feet are caught in them. The wicked borrows, but something happens in the plots of the wicked. It does not carry them as far as they think. 
but the righteous find that the Lord has provided for them not only to meet their needs, but for them to show love and generosity and care in the lives of others. And so the wicked who refuse the Lord and who refuse to be faithful stewards of their financial situation or to work with integrity and faithfulness, they will find the scenario that even their deeds to try to secure their future in their worldly ways will not give them what they're hoping. The wicked borrows and doesn't pay back. And likely that's because when there is a borrowing, it is followed by a lack of financial blessing and sustenance and provision from the Lord. Different is the case of the righteous. The righteous is generous and gives because the righteous are those who are trusting in God as refuge and they count on the Lord in all things. They trust that He is God even over in their economic situation. And it tells us in verse 22 the reason that the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. You see, what do the righteous know as they're looking to God and trying to live for the Lord and treating God as their refuge? God honors them, vindicates them, blesses them, shows them that they can trust Him in all things. For the wicked, it's different. In verse 22, those cursed by the Lord shall be cut off. Inheriting the land versus being cut off. Being cut off is the denial of inheritance in the promised land. That was a picture of what God has promised for His people. And that means from Old Testament to New, what God has promised His people, the wicked do not receive. Because that's the Old Testament promise of inheriting the land. So the righteous are going to inherit the land. They're going to be led by Joshua. And they're going to receive those allotted territories in the land of Canaan through the mighty conquest. But the wicked... The wicked shall be judged. Think of that wilderness generation in the Old Testament book of Numbers who demonstrated in their unbelief and in their unrighteousness a lack of trust in the Lord and a rebellion against God and against God's appointed leader Moses. What happened with them? They were cut off from the land. It is a picture of the denial to the wicked what is only promised for the people of God. In verse 22, those blessed by the Lord, that's an Old Testament way of inheriting the land For the New Testament people of God, it's a way of saying all that God has promised for us in Christ and the new heavens and new earth to come will be ours fully and forever and gloriously, but not so for the wicked. They shall be denied. The wicked do not receive what God has only promised for His people. Knowing that contrast, that's not short-term thinking. That's long-term thinking. So fret not over the evildoers, for while they might seek worldly gain and seem to be successful in their strategies, it shall not be so in the long run. They will not receive or head into or inherit, to use the language of verse 22, what the righteous shall. Thought about how last week in verse 9, not verse 9, verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. And this is used in the New Testament in the words of the Lord Jesus, that the meek shall inherit the earth. Why should the righteous not envy the wicked? Because the righteous shall inherit the earth. You need not fear. Why should the wicked tremble before God that in their wicked schemes and in their malicious strategies, they are trying to enrich themselves at the expense of their neighbor? Why should the wicked tremble in light of that? Because their strategies shall fail. They shall be brought down and low, and they shall be cut off. Another um, contrast in verses 23 and following, 
talks about the steps of the righteous. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he, God, delights in his, the righteous's way. The last part of that verse is very, it's very important for us to understand what's being claimed. The steps of the man are established, which means the Lord has such care over the lives of his people that he establishes or makes firm their feet. That they might not fall fall off the path of righteousness and wisdom. This narrow way on which they walk to a land of inheritance. The steps of the man are secure. That's what it means to establish them. God takes the providential uh, actions in the lives of his people to establish their steps. So the steps of a man are established by the Lord. What? Any man? No matter what? We need the last part of the verse. God establishes the steps of, of men when he delights in their way. Meaning that the path the person has pursued, it accords with, it corresponds to the wisdom and ways of walking with God. And the Lord delights in the path of wisdom. The Lord delights in those who take refuge in Him and want to walk in faithfulness before Him. So the Lord establishes the steps of a man when He delights in His way. And though he, this man, might seem to fall, he will not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. At the end of verse 23, and at the end of verse 24, the actions of the Lord. God delights in the man's way, and the Lord upholds the man's hand. Do you see the different uh, elements of the body there being represented for the man's life? The steps of a man that makes us think of his feet walking upon a way. And though he fall, he, not, he will not be cast headlong. The Lord will uphold his hand. When you're stumbling, you might reach out to catch yourself. This might have happened to you recently. You're, uh, you're just walking along. and You trip on something, slip on something. And, and your instinct, your bodily instinct is exactly right. You reach out. You want to you steady yourself. You want to gain your balance. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. You know what's great when we find that we're about to stumble? That someone of stable foundation right next to us reaches out. Says you're not going to fall. You're not going to go headlong. You're not going to go collapsing in this direction or that direction. I'm right here with you. And the Lord is not distracted. He is not aloof or remote or distracted in our lives. He is attentive and shepherding to the uttermost. This is such good news. Because though we might stumble or fall, we shall not be cast headlong. The Lord seizes us and holds us and upholds us with His hand. He holds our hand. Verses 21 through 24 are making a case through these contrasts with the wicked and the righteous of why we would want to be those who trust in the Lord and count God as our refuge. And in verses 25 and 26, as this section is completed, the writer's going to give a bit of a testimony here. He says, I've been young, and now I'm old. So he says, let me just tell you what I've seen, because I was once young, it's not true anymore, and and now I'm what you would call old, and given that spectrum of time, I have not seen the righteous forsaken. That's his way of saying, The righteous will not be cast headlong. The Lord upholds His hand. And you know what? I've never seen God fail His people. I've never seen it. And I've been around, the writer says. 
I've been here for some years and, from some de- and for some decades. And I've been young and I've been old. And I have never seen with these eyes God forsake His people. That's His testimony. It will be our testimony. That we know, given who God is and His steadfast love toward us, we shall know ourselves as the people who were never forsaken by the Lord. I've not seen the righteous forsaken or His children begging for bread. It's this picture of leading in and and having a household oriented toward righteousness under the blessing of God. It's the picture here of the righteous one and his children that he's seeking to turn to the Lord and teach the Lord to. That these children might know of God like the Israelite commands to pass along his wonders and deeds from generation to generation. And he says, okay, I was once of a younger generation and now I'm old. And I've seen the people who know God and who age and who are bringing up children. And I see the blessing of God in their household. The righteous are not forsaken. The children are not begging for bread. He's lending generously in verse 26. And his children become a blessing. The he of verse 26 is that righteous man. That righteous man who's not forsaken in verse 25 and in verse 26 lives out the blessing and favor of God toward others. He's lending. He's looking to the needs of others. He's not trying to live for himself. He wants to love God and love neighbor. And when he sees his neighbor in need, he wants to lend generously. And his children become a blessing. All of this seems to be rooted in God's promise to the family of Abraham and those who know the faith of Abraham. In Genesis 12 and following, God is going to bless the family of Abraham through the seed of Abraham, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. So that through faith in Christ, we find ourselves those blessed by God, living for the glory of God and and by the grace of God from generation to generation to generation to generation, testifying of his faithfulness and proclaiming his deeds and wonders. It's what we want. This is the case for the righteous. It is not so for the wicked. Look in verses 27 through 31. We need to know about the present and the future of the righteous. Verses 27 to 31 unpacks the present and the future of the righteous. A command in verse 27. It's not the first command in in Psalm 37, but it is the first command we see in in this morning's section. In verse 27, turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. What marks the wicked? What is it that will lead to them being cut off? They refuse to repent of their sin and trust in the Lord. What marks the wicked is they are living in rebellion against God and they do not want God as their refuge. God's authority just gets in the way of what they want to do and how they want to live. And so they don't want the authority of God. They don't want the Lordship of Christ. They don't want to turn from their sin. They love their sin. That's what they want. Sin is their life. It is their strategy. And it is a destroying strategy. Turn away from evil and do good, he says. So you shall dwell forever. He's talking about that inheritance, that promise for the people of God. In verse 28, why should they turn from evil and do good? For the Lord loves justice. He's saying, love what the Lord loves. Hate what the Lord hates. One of the effects of sin upon our hearts is that we find ourselves desiring what is dishonorable and we don't find ourselves pursuing and seeking what is honorable and good in the eyes of the Lord. Our desires have been marred by the effects of sin. We know this is true. 
And the need that we have is that the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, would help us to see evil for what it is. Sin is bait with a hook in it. It's not what it's making itself out to be. Sin never presents itself honestly. That's why the Bible sees farther down the road than we do and says, here's where evil leads. Here's the effect of sin on your soul. Here's what, what a folly does to your life and the lives of your neighbors. So that when we see evil exposed by the Bible for being what it is, we will look at evil and think, well, then yes, I should turn from it. Because this is what it is. And yes, I should seek God and seek to do good in the eyes of the Lord. Because the Lord loves justice and he will not forsake his saints. He will not forsake his saints in verse 28 is like that promise earlier in verses 23 and 25. God establishes the steps of his people because he delights in their way. And when we may fall, the Lord is there to grab our arm, to uphold us with his mighty hand. Verse 28 just puts it this way. He will not forsake his saints. They're preserved forever. There is such a rest and assurance in that promise. That we are preserved forever. How do we know we will be Christians a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, if we know the Lord? Because our salvation granted to us by His grace will not be removed from us. He preserves us. Why are we called to persevere? Is that because if we, if we don't do this, there's no salvation for us any longer? The perseverance of the saints is grounded in the preserving grace of God. He preserves us. And not just for a season. He preserves us forever. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. It is a way of saying, generationally, what are we trying to proclaim? We're trying to proclaim the words and deeds of God that the generation, one after another, will know Christ, trust Christ, follow Christ, but the wicked only live according to unrighteousness. What would the effect of that be? Upon them and upon those who come after them. Well, apart from the intervening grace of God, there's just a, a pursuit of wickedness and therefore of judgment. In verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. It's saying the same thing we've seen in earlier verses. That God will keep His promises to His people. So the question is, are we His people? How do we know? Is God your refuge? Do you desire to follow Him? Do you want to trust Him and know Him? Do you want to fear the Lord and turn from evil? Friends, these are indications of a, of a work of God within your heart. People who don't know God don't want to follow God. They don't want to worship Him. They don't want to know His Word. But if you see within yourself, if you can discern by the grace of God that you, though a sinner, do not want to live in rebellion, but you want to follow Christ, you want to trust His sacrifice in your stead, you know He's borne your sins upon the cross and that He rose from the dead in victory, and you want to know what it is like to follow this Christ as a disciple. Friends, these are the signs of new life. These are the signs of new birth. That these are things you now want. You didn't always want those things. It wasn't appealing to you always that the Lord Jesus would be the refuge for your heart. But God's mercy and God's grace are powerful and mighty. And there's a work that happens in the heart. This is what verses 30 through 31 are about. 
The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Several elements of the body mentioned there, right? Mouth. What comes out of the mouth? Wisdom. And his tongue, right there in the mouth, is speaking justice. So he, with his words, is pursuing what is true and right in the eyes of God. He's committed to the truth. She's committed to the truth. The truth matters because God loves what is just. And and the tongue of the righteous speaks wisdom. But according to the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, out of the overflow of the heart come our words and our deeds. So the question is, if the righteous speak wisdom, what's that coming from? We have to ask that question. And in verse 31, it's because of something in the heart of God's people. What's in the heart of God's people that leads to words and a path of life that is righteous and that is God-trusting and that is heaven-bound? It is in verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart. The law of his God, which means that's what God has made known of himself. It's his word. It's his law. It's his revelation of his glory in nature and his redemptive plan and what walking wisely with God looks like. The word of God becomes the concern for the people of God. We want to know it. We want to internalize it. We want to grow in it. We want to walk and step with it. In other words, the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice because out of the overflow of a heart that is now infused with the words and gospel of Christ. That's the truth. About the heart of the people of God. And therefore, in verse 31, his steps do not slip. I think that's another way of saying what verse 30 and what verse 24 said though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. The Lord upholds his people. Now, the last section of the passage is in verses 32 to 40. In verses 32 to 40, this is the rescue of the righteous from the wicked. Just as we need to know about the present and future of the righteous, it also includes a promise of rescue. In verses 32 to 40, in the last section of Psalm 37, the rescue of the righteous from the wicked. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. This is one of the most disturbing things about the seed of the serpent at work in the world. The people whose allegiance is not to Christ and those who are enemies of the cross... They can have in their hearts such a despising of the people of God that they would grit their teeth and gnash their teeth at the people of God and destroy them if they could. The wicked watches for opportunities for this. They are looking for ways to undermine the cause of the gospel. They want to thwart it at every conceivable turn. They want the righteous to fail. They want the righteous to be caught up in snares. They want the righteous not only to have their cause fail, but the lives of the righteous to end. Think of the plotting, the the malice that's behind verse 32 here. The wicked watches for the righteous. There's something very frightening about that in one sense, isn't it? Here is someone looking actively with eyes for opportunity for the righteous to be caught up in something unto destruction. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. This was true for the righteous in no greater way than it was true for the Lord Jesus. Think about the Gospels where Jesus performs a miracle or in some setting gives a controversial teaching. And the narrator may say, 
And they went and they conspired together how they might destroy him. Or they gathered together that they might seek how to put him to death. The wicked have always opposed the righteous. Think of Cain and Abel in the early books, uh, in the early book of Scripture. In the book of Genesis, chapter 4, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are demonstrated with Abel in right worship unto God and Cain, whose heart is far from God, though both brought offerings, one brother murdered the other one. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yes, from Genesis forward, this has been the case. There's nothing new under the sun. And Jesus teaches us in John chapter 15 that a servant is not above his master. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. So Jesus wants us to recognize we ought not be surprised that the world has hatred for the people of God. The world innately, by the nature of wickedness, despises righteousness, hates justice, and pursues the dark deeds of sin. But, given The frightening prospect of verse 32 is the promise of God's vindicating grace in verse 33. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. This is a way of saying in principle that the Lord is for his people and seeks to work in their lives. I do take this to be a principle. We know that the righteous suffer. We know that there are martyrs for the faith. When it says the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he's brought to trial, I think of uh, Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they said the Lord is able to deliver us, but even if this is an occasion where we will give our lives for the kingdom of God, we will not bow, O king, or worship your idol. And so there is a conviction here of the preserving and, and accompanying grace and presence of God for his people. I think about the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is under uh, arrest, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says in verse 15, that people like Alexander the coppersmith strongly opposed our message. And at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. What does Paul experience in the first century Roman Empire? People who are wicked watching for the righteous to seek their destruction. And Paul even finds himself on trial. And Paul knows the Psalms. He knows the accompanying grace of God with him. So Paul says in verse 17, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. There it is. There's the promise of Psalm 37 at work in Paul's life. Though all else had forsaken, who had not forsaken Paul? The one who never forsakes his people. The Lord Jesus. There with Paul. Strengthening him for the hour of trial. And even for the moment of martyrdom to testify to the beauty of the gospel and the supremacy of Christ. In verse 34 of our passage this morning, he says to us, he exhorts us, wait for the Lord and keep his way. It's that call to patience because he knows how impatient we can be. Especially if we're tempted to envy the gain of the wicked. If we look at their strategies and we say, well, it seems to be working. Maybe I should imitate that. Here's the psalmist's words to us. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. Now what's the opposite of that? Getting tired of waiting for the Lord and abandoning the way of wisdom and righteousness and pursuing injustice and wickedness instead. That in your impatience and in your envy, in your covetousness, 
in your selfishness, those fleshly things would seek to have their way if they could get a foothold. The psalmist knows what we are capable of. He says in verse 34, wait for the Lord. And the only reason someone is going to wait for the Lord is if they're not living for the short term. Because waiting on the Lord in the eyes of the wicked doesn't seem to pay off immediately. They might have reviled the disciples had they had the opportunity when they saw the Lord Jesus on the cross. Oh, look where your movement got you. Here's your your mighty Messiah. Now, of course, the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane had fled in their own fear. But the opportunities for the disciples to consider in the short term all that we had been investing All of the movement's momentum. Does it seem to have failed? And in the isolation of that Friday, it looked to everyone beholding a man upon a cross that this was the ultimate failure of someone who claimed to be blessed by the Lord. Who claimed to be the Messiah. But you couldn't just think about that isolated day. You have to incorporate what follows. You have to think about the resurrection of the dead and the ascension of the Lord Jesus on, he- on heaven in heaven to have the name that is above every name. You have to think about the unfolding events that go beyond that Friday. What would the psalmist's words be for those disciples on that Friday? Wait for the Lord. Wait. Wait for the Lord. Trust the Lord. Keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off, verse 34 says. It's a, it's a command that only makes sense if there is a sovereign God who is worthy of our trust and we need not abandon ourselves to the worldly means to establish our steps. We can trust the Lord and wait for Him. There is a patience, an active patience of hoping in God and trusting in His Word that this must mean. Keep His way must mean we know what His way is. And that's revealed by His Word, that we would study it and know it. That His law would be upon our heart. And that we would live out in the way we walk the words God has said. In verse 34, wait for the Lord, keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. Being exalted in the eyes of the world is nothing compared to being vindicated by the favor of God. In verse 34, it's that latter idea that's meant. He shall exalt you or lift you up to inherit the land. The righteous may look at the world in which they live and feel that they have been brought very low. But you need to know the promise of Psalm 37 that the Lord will lift you up. In due time and in His good providence and according to His perfect wisdom, you need to trust Him. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. In verse 34, that's a way of saying what he says in verse 35. I've seen a wicked man, ruthless man, spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Which looks like something that is fertile and blossoming out. And it seems to be working. The wicked seem to be successful. He says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man who seems to be fruitful in his wickedness. It's like the opposite of Psalm 1 at first. Because blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And he's like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water. And what he does prospers and he doesn't wither. But here it seems to look like the wicked are planted and prospering. So you've got to keep reading. In verse 36, we realize the wicked are not like the Psalm 1 man. He, in verse 36, passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. This is a way of saying... 
The way it looks right now is not the way it will be. And the way the wicked presume in their invincibility and their success will be brought to a crashing end. He passed away and behold was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Verse 37 tells us who to look to. Don't envy the wicked. Don't look to the evildoers and fret because of them. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. We are creatures of imitation, you see. We look to people's lives and we glean things from them. Ways of living and ways of talking. Ways of of, uh, taking on influence. Because we're not made of stone. We're naturally people who are formed and shaped by relationships that are with us. This is why we need to walk with the wise. Because Proverbs teaches us that the one who walks with the wise will grow wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So here's what he says. You need to mark and you need to behold the blameless and the upright. You need to keep your eye on those who are walking with God. Forget about the wicked and their seeming success and their seeming prospering. The whole story is not told yet. Instead, you need to look at the blameless, the upright, those who know God, those who walk with God, those who fear God. Mark them, behold them, watch them, because what's their future? There's a future for the man of peace, but not for the wicked. See, the man of peace is another phrase there for the upright, the blameless. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You need to look to those whose future you want to share. And that's why Psalm 37 tells you what the future of the wicked will be. That you might look at the truth of the Word of God and say, I don't want that for my future. I want to walk with the people of God to know God as He's made me to know Him. To walk wisely on a path of life. To love justice from the heart. And in doing so, have a future of the favor and blessing of God that I'm walking into. An inheritance of new creation and resurrection glory. There is a future for the man who knows God. So therefore, behold them, mark them, walk with them, look to them. In verse 38, but transgressors shall altogether be destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. This will happen ultimately at the future day of judgment. But even the wicked now in this age are brought low over and over and time and time again. Where their sinful rebellion against God becomes their very undoing and they were so sure that it wouldn't. In verse 38, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. We don't want that future. As the people of God, we know we will be preserved forever by the Lord. He upholds us by His hand, and our steps shall not slip. Because in verses 39 and 40, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. It's not based in anything within us. Salvation is of God. It's of divine, sovereign grace. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Oh, oh! don't think that because we're the righteous, we will not know times of trouble. We will. The times of trouble exist because we are in a fallen world. But in the time of trouble, the righteous know that their refuge is God. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. And the Lord helps them. This is Paul's testimony. 2 Timothy 4. He said, everybody else turned away from me when I was at my trial, but not the Lord. The Lord was with me and the Lord strengthened me. In other words, the one you need most with you is the one you can most count on to never forsake you. The Lord helps them and delivers them. 
He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. There are all kinds of phrases that from time to time people bring up and say, oh, doesn't the Bible teach this? Here's one of them. Some might say, well, doesn't the Bible teach that God helps those who help themselves? That's one of those statements that is sometimes said to be in the Bible somewhere. To the surprise of some people who come up with, uh, with this phrase that they've heard, um, they can search from Genesis to Revelation and they will not find this promise. They will not find this promise that God helps those who help themselves. But I tell you what Psalm 37 does say. God helps those who take refuge in Him. That is a promise you can have. That is a promise from the Word of God. Not that God helps those who help themselves, but that God helps those who will come to Him. So, come to Him and know the help and strength of the God who is full of steadfast love and mercy, who never forsakes His people and will keep all His promises. Let's pray.